Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld. Welcome to another edition of Observations. I hope this finds you doing well and that you are having the very uh, best time consuming all of your pop culture because that's what we do here and we do lots of it. And my speciality is comic books and comic book superheroes and that's kind of what we um, discuss all the time. And if you're a new listener, you'll learn pretty quickly we are celebrating comics here. We celebrate comic books because they have become the foundation for so much that we have um, th- that we are consuming, um, and, and consuming in the best possible way. Consuming by reading them, consuming by experiencing, not not, not just purchasing them. Um, the, the, the the comic book landscape that I grew up with has become the architectural digest for the world that is constructed around us. Whether you saw Black Widow. Uh, in the last few weeks, or you plan on seeing the Eternals uh, from Marvel coming up, whether you saw Loki, whether you watched any one of the Disney Plus uh, Marvel shows or Star Wars shows, whether you saw Snake Eyes recently in the theaters, all of these are products of the newsprint comic books that I was pulling off spinner racks at your local market, uh, deli, liquor store. Um, that, that that's where my love affair began and that's what we do here that's what we, what we share and and so we are in the middle the beginning of actually not the middle yet of of a series called comic book feuds i am not sharing comic book feuds with you guys in order to pick sides or to get saucy details if sometimes those spill out it, it's not by complete design i truly believe so many of these comic book feuds were um, seminal in pivoting positions and directions of the comics industry. Uh, just as with musicians, again, when 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 a, when a, a band has a falling out, and, and and okay, so let's let's stick with bands because because in in I went to high school from 1981 to 1985. I graduated in June of 1985. I was 17 years old. Formative years were spent in the 80s. My 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 music tastes were really built uh, being a, a seven and eight year old driving around with my sister who was seven years, remains seven years older than I am. So if I'm seven, she's 14, do the math. She's always seven years ahead, which is where I really got into uh, jumping in the car with my sister and her eight track player. Uh, she, she would be blasting ACDC, Aerosmith, uh, Led Zeppelin, Kiss, Peter Frampton. A lot of the uh, 70s rock was, the, where, was where I started out. But then by the 80s, you, you, you really get the, the, just this amazing avalanche of new acts, especially the, the British invasion that came over, that gave us the English beat, that gave us Duran Duran, that gave us Spandau Ballet, that gave us, you know... Um, Madness. I mean, it, just everything in between. Just everything in between. Uh, but rock bands and and, and semi pop bands uh, of the '80s went through this massive, massive upheaval of lead singers. So, of course, uh, if you have never watched the remaining members of Chicago, uh, you know Chicago was born as this big brass band, big horns. And trumpets, and they were not having that. They had that they had some early hits, but.
but then the hits fell away from them and a super producer named David Foster enters the picture. He puts the spotlight on Peter Cetera. They have their biggest hits that they've ever imagined in their career. You, you, um, heard so many of them and, uh, and then, then they ultimately have a falling out because the horns and the trumpets are no longer the focus. David Foster, uh, covers this in his documentary. It's on Netflix called David Foster, but CBS this morning, which is kind of the, uh, uh, more pop uh, uh, flavored 60 Minutes. It's still from their news division. And you can watch all sorts of episodes on the, the I think it's called Paramount Plus now. But a couple years back, they interviewed Chicago now that they are have, you know, two decades removed from Peter Cetera. And, uh, and and you know, they they talk about that time uh, with, with contempt. Uh, so it's not just a David Foster framed documentary it's if it's it's a chicago focused documentary they don't even talk to peter satara in the in the in the i'm sorry the cbs spotlight on the cbs this morning and they are very angry with how they were sidelined while satara's voice took the uh the spotlight and as a result you know there was tensions and satara went off on his own and probably his most famous ballad was uh the karate kid 2 uh song that, 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 that he did again with David Foster and Peter Cetera went on to, to uh, much acclaim and, and much success. And the most, the interesting, um, really interesting thing about this specific Chicago example is it comp, I was in uh, Toronto for not their, not their August show, but for their winter show. It's put on by Fan Expo, so it was their winter or spring show, and it was in 2016. It was right after Deadpool had opened, a couple of weeks after 2016's Deadpool, and I talked about this lead singer, you know, uh, revolution where where not only did was it Chicago, it was Styx, it was Van Halen, it was Journey, it was I mean you 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 name it, you go down the list, and bands, uh, you know, break up. And more music's created. But when I brought this up on stage at the Toronto show, afterwards, a gentleman comes up to me with his card, had a had a had a bag slung over his shoulders, and he said, It's crazy that you mentioned Peter Cetera in Chicago up there. I'm Peter's Peter Cetera's manager. Um if you ever want to come to a show, you know, look me up. He would love all the things you said about him. And I just can't believe that, that I, during your panel, you mentioned Peter, Peter Cetera. I'm like, well, how do you think I feel? I, I mentioned Peter Cetera in Chicago, and now Peter Cetera's manager was in attendance to my panel. So Small World meant to uh, really uh, illustrate that when David Lee Roth and and, and Van Halen break up and and, and Sam, Sammy Hagar joins, and, and, and guys, it was so much fun. In 1986, David Lee Roth was doing his tour, supporting his very successful first solo um, uh, effort with, 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 uh, with California girls and, uh, just all, all his solo music that he created because he locked into, you know, he saw that his voice and his sound had resonance and he separated and Van Halen got Sammy Hagar, who was, had a waning, uh, solo career, but supercharged when he joined with Van Halen and they became to many people, Van Hagar. And at, at, at Van Halen, at, at David Lee Roth concerts, there'd be giant flags, uh, flying flags like like bed sheets that they put on poles and they 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 painted on it no Van Hagar and uh, and and then you know at the Van Halen concert concerts now with Sammy Hagar they'd be like Van Hagar rules so it was like the battle of the of the lead singers and of course uh, you know Journey 
um, like I said, sticks. When, when sometimes when these guys break up, it's it's very it's irre- irreconcilable, and um, and in a band like the Eagles, which I think uh, you know for whatever reason they took a long pause, a 14-year pause. They, they literally broke up. But then you got some great songs from Glenn Fry, And, and honestly, uh, Don Henley found his voice and won a million, uh, a lot, a lot of Grammys off his solo efforts. And I would not trade those Don Henley solo al- albums, efforts, for anything. Because again, these breakups, um, it's in, and to get it back into comic books, it's like, especially given Loki and the variants and the the Disney Plus series, or when you were in Endgame, and uh, and 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 you know the uh, the ancient one is explaining, you know the breaking off of the timeline, and and the timeline has branches and stems off and creates variants. Well, this is kind of you know what happens when when feuds happen. Some good stuff comes out of feuds. I regret deeply as a fan that John Byrne and Terry Austin and Chris Claremont broke up on the X-Men. But as I said, the reason for really highlighting the feud is what comes after. And and what do these uh, these talents do post-feud sometimes is as compelling as what they were doing when they were together. Certainly, John Lennon and Paul McCartney, uh, I have songs in both of their catalogs that are only from their solo albums that I favor as much, if not more so, than the stuff that they did with with the Beatles. It never detracts from what they accomplished as the Beatles, but it certainly uh, enhances what they're capable of when they go off and they hone exactly who they are and what they can do on their own. And and sometimes it's it's freeing, and sometimes uh, the the landing is not soft. Sometimes the landing is crushing um, for, 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 for certain acts and for certain talents. And the same is said in comic books. And so these feuds are meant to really illustrate the, the pivot in the road, the fork in the road that these talents come to when they break off. And, uh, and there's, there's so many of them. Here's the thing the the, the comic book feud series is, uh, is plentiful, uh, to say the least. And, and, and you will find that I will be involved in some of those. Because I love a good feud. I've had a couple good feuds. But today, for our purposes, we are focusing on one of the most celebrated auteurs, authors of our time. And that is Mr. Alan Moore. <clears throat> when when I The times that I would speak to Alan, again, let me try and summon my best Alan. Rob, Robert, it's Alan. <clears throat> very, very much deeper, slower. Uh, I never saw Alan talk fast. You always talked <clears throat> in a lower register like this. Rob, it's Alan. I, I, I don't want to take it much of your time today. Uh, my, I've, I've told you guys on previous uh, podcasts, and we have dissected so much of what Alan did. There's an entire Watchmen podcast and talks about how competitive both Frank Miller and Alan Moore were with each other at the time and how Dark Knight was informed by Watchmen and Watchmen was informed by Dark Knight. And I'll tell you, both of them were informed by Howard Chaikin's American Flag, which came first. And I still owe Howard an entire hour on his immediate, impactful, amazing talent because you talk about a guy who found his voice and he found it on American Flag. That's two Gs, F-L-A-G-G. But Alan... Uh, I taped several conversations with him. I would say, hey, Alan, I've got the tape recorder rolling. It was just like a, you know, fun thing to do. 
and especially after the first round of stories that I heard from him. And the longest conversation we ever had was when Pulp Fiction came out, and he was just so enamored with Quentin Tarantino, and we must have talked for an hour about Pulp Fiction. So Alan was starting to work with my studio as far back as 1994. And, uh, you know, but that is way down the line in what he accomplished. But we had a uh, a four-year relationship, solid, 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, five-year relationship with Alan Moore. And he wrote a lot of stuff for me. And we were seen as giving him kind of his uh, base again. He had not been producing much work whatsoever. The industry had really, ironically, if you can even believe this, had kind of moved on from Alan in the early 90s, partially because of his position on this feud. And the first feud that was the most memorable feud, and I think defines um, so many of his feuds, was the fallout from Watchmen. So we have done an entire episode on the Watchmen series. We've talked glowingly about Alan. What you will never hear from me on this podcast is uh, that Alan is, what you will always hear from me is that Alan is ridiculously talented. One of the most talented writers, creators, minds that comic books ever saw. He really created an entire path. It's kind of like this uh, retro forward. Uh, He always kind of took an echo and he, uh, and, and an echo as we've established here on the show is when Miracle Man is an echo of Captain Marvel slash Shazam, okay? Just like we've talked about, the Squadron Supreme is an echo of the Justice League, down to, I mean, they have a Speedster, the Wizard, they have a Superman, Hyperion, they have a Wonder Woman, Power Princess, they have, you know, they have a Batman and Nighthawk, you know, they have a, they they have Captain Hawk instead of Hawkman, okay? They have Tom Thumb instead of the Atom, they have the Golden Archer instead of Green Arrow, So, so it's very, very much purposeful. The Imperial Guard, um, the Legion of Superheroes, throughout history, a lot of echoes. Watchmen is also filled with echoes, and we'll get to that in just a minute, but his Alan's big uh, work on Marvel Man, which, which revived the old Marvel Man uh, uh, strip comic book, in and of itself was influenced by Billy Batson, Captain Marvel, Shazam, and... Uh, it, it, you may have known of this as Miracle Man because when Eclipse Comics got around to publishing it, they changed the name. So it became Miracle Man, not Marvel Man. <clears throat> he did that work with uh, really spectacular artists, uh, Gary Leach and Alan Davis. That, that's where I came to learn of Alan Moore um, and was blown away by his work. It was published in a black and white magazine imported from um, Britain in the UK. They had a a magazine called Warrior Magazine, and for the, the shorthand of Warrior Magazine, it was like a black and white version of heavy metal. Uh, tons of different short stories, um, uh, serialized adventures, and and we got it imported over here via the distributor uh, network. and And I was grabbing it for so many of the great characters and the artists, and Alan Moore was one of them. But uh, Alan uh, get, comes to fame doing the Marvel Man slash later Miracle Man stories, and we've covered those in recent podcasts as well. And uh, and he then gets hired to do Swamp Thing over at DC, and that's where he really makes the most impact. And Swamp Thing had been kind of a superhero-esque character, even though his Swamp Thing's roots are with Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson. By this time, it's uh, Tom Yates and some others 
who had been uh, returning him to <clears throat> a new series, <clears throat> excuse me, over at DC Comics, <clears throat> but it did not go to this next level kind of horror uh, themed genre until Alan took it over. And in fact, the anatomy lesson, his, his absolute breakthrough Swamp Thing uh, issue uh, reveals that Swamp Thing is part of this mythical lore called the Green, and it he, he he's part of a larger you know um, mythos that 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 um, not necessarily protects but dictates the world and the environment, and it's fascinating, and it was really mind blowing that so beyond it, it, it's one of those things like you were supposed to you know have this encounter and bond with this. Uh, doctor and, and 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 you're an, you're an embodiment and 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 you are uh the fulfillment of this kind of legacy and it made swamp thing instantly deeper and more interesting and more than he had ever been and it really showed a giant flex on alan moore's part he fast tracks to watchman watchman was originally as you know and as we talk in very much so about in our watchman podcast go back it's one of mid-year season one the uh the the watchman was originally supposed to be the charlton heroes dc had acquired them that is the question that is blue beetle um captain adam captain adam became dr manhattan blue beetle becomes you know uh the owl owl man uh you know uh rorschach becomes a demented version of the question and uh this is all because at the last minute dc got cold feet because they didn't, uh, they they realized that if Alan did this kind of whatever happened to version of the Charlton Heroes, which makes them very adult and gives them very adult consequences, that it is uh, in essence cutting off access to those Charlton Heroes following this Alan Moore effort. No one doubted for a minute that it would be successful, but Alan takes it in his own direction, shows up, has rebooted everyone to be Echoes again. Doctor Adam becomes Doctor Manhattan, and and you know. It, it's safe to say that given Alan's, um, you know, uh, penchant for making Echoes, in, in essence, when Alan leaves Awesome because Awesome is no longer going to operate, my label was Awesome and he had done three years worth of Supreme stories that we published about two and a half years of and they had won him all sorts of acclaim and award and really put him back into that um you know, Alan is the greatest writer of all time. And, and again, he won these awards on Supreme, a character that I created and that I um, had been publishing prior to him coming on board. He gave his own very kind of um, twisted Superman uh, 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 version of this and had a rousing great time, some great collaborators that we provided along the lines of Joe Bennett and Chris Sprouse and and uh, Ian Churchill and, and Jim Starlin, all of whom... Uh, were all hands on deck in creating this incredible run that Alan provided for us for Supreme. That vision was his and his alone, but but he also had written uh, first two issues of a book of mine called Glory, which in and of itself is an echo of Wonder Woman, and Youngblood, which was, you know, kind of a version of the Avengers. And so when he wanted to uh, continue forward with these concepts, he went to Wildstorm and then did Echoes, of Supreme and Glory and Youngblood, which became Top 10, Pramitha and Tom Strong. And even some of those collaborators, like, you know, you got the Supreme vibe because Tom, Chris Sprouse was jamming alongside uh, 
uh, Alan on that and, and Alan's structure, the structure of his work, which was tell a story in the present, have a flashback to a past adventure that would inform very Silver Age. He, he liked to play with this Silver Age structure of storytelling that was so prominent, especially in the Superman comic books. But Alan is adept at echoes. He is quick. He can do it immediately. I saw it when the awesome characters became echoes of and, and, and became the uh, ABC line of books for Wildstorm. And, uh, and, and that's what I imagine when DC said we can't do the Charlton Heroes. He conjured up these Watchmen echoes. Now, we all know Watchmen is this incredible mystery who, you know, who is uh, watching the Watchmen and it's a murder mystery. And, and uh, you know, again, we, we follow this brilliant 12 issues and it reads like a novel and, and not enough attention is given to the incredibly intricate detail and storytelling and lines on the page that Dave Gibbons did to bring this story to life. And he is truly an equal um, participant in this per, uh, per Alan Moore. And so, so no one's denying that uh, on, on any level because, um, <laughs> because, be, 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 because uh, Alan, you know, will, will, will acknowledge Dave as equal to him on, on that book. But Alan has had a different position in regards to what happened with the Watchmen than Dave Gibbons has had because Dave Gibbons has had no feud. He has been compliant all along the way of what we'll call DC's further exploitation of Watchmen. And what happens is this uh, brilliant Watchmen work that Alan is inspired to do based on his now lack of access to these Charlton heroes. Um, and... Uh, and, 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 and he creates this incredible world and this incredible series and alongside Dave Gibbons. And, you know, we all scoop it up and it's delicious and we, and it, we consume it. It's called Watchmen. Highly recommended. Get it in whatever form you can. Read it in one sitting. Remember those of us who experienced it in real time. It's, it's, it's if you get it right now and you read it in a trade paperback, you are getting to binge Watchmen. Okay. So I was watching Robert Kirkman's Invincible cartoon. It came out, you know every week on Amazon and I loved it. And then my son, my oldest son decided he was going to sample it and he saw it all in one sitting. Again, difference between me waiting each week and those cliffhangers and that agony, even though I, I knew everything that was coming, they had kind of slightly altered it to make it fresh, you know, for TV with Invincible. But my, my son sat down and consumed all of it in one afternoon, which, you know, I, I go, I can't imagine what that's like. He, he watched all of Lost. He watched all of Lost in a span of three weeks several summers ago where we watched Lost hanging week to week, sometime off-season to off-season. So binging Watchmen, I don't know what that's like. I remember, you know, very, very specifically having to wait each month or months because towards the, the end it got delayed and the, the length for the last few was, 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 was more, just like Dark Knight issues three and four took like six months to come out after one and two came out, you know, boom, boom, right at one, right after the other. So if you get to read Watchmen and you get to binge it in, in one sitting, what a great gift that is for you. We experienced it in real time differently. I actually worked at a comic book store at the time and was actually at working the register when, you know, that book was being released. And, uh, and it was again, a, a huge, when Watchmen came out every week, it was a big deal. DC, I think DC knew what they had on their hands again with Swamp Thing 
Allen had really proven himself to be this powerhouse and, and made Swamp Thing one of the most compelling books in the DC catalog at a time when prior to Allen coming on, it was not. It was, it was way down the list in terms of, you know, quote-unquote, bestsellers or profitable books for DC. And Alan, on that book, turned those fortunes around. So the glitch in the Matrix it, it, with, with, with Watchmen in, in terms of his understanding and his relationship with DC is that DC informed him. And it is very well chronicled, but if you don't know it, you're going to hear it now. Uh, Moore had an agreement uh, from what I understand in, in, in reading this, it's even contractual that uh, because Moore himself, it's uh, very famous that at a UK convention over, over in England, uh, this is in the comics journal. I'm reading you from the comics journal, which again was, was devoted to Alan, was such a, a devotee of everything that he was doing. In the comics journal, the, 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 they, they report that Alan tells the audience at this comic convention in 1986. Uh, if, the, if the characters outlive their natural lifespan and DC doesn't want to do anything with them, this is Alan talking, <clears throat> so I should try Alan. If, uh, <clears throat> if, the <clears throat> if the characters have outlived their natural lifespan and DC doesn't want to do anything with them, then after a year, we've got them and we can do what we want with them, which I'm perfectly happy with. So he tells you right there, after one year, if DC does not publish them, does not, you know, have use for them, he says, but in, in what that means is publish them, then, uh, then, then, then he is content to get them back because that's what the understanding is. And uh, he has a similar contract he informs with V for Vendetta. And so here's the great problem that Alan encountered was that Watchmen became a giant global hit and DC never ever abandoned it and did in fact publish it every single year. They have printed Watchmen in perpetuity. One of my favorite words, you cannot say it slow. You can try perpetuity. Perpetuity. It said best, fast. Perpetuity. Okay. And so, uh, you know, Watchmen has been a, a, a book for great longevity. And in fact, all DC had to do was set the collection back to press every single year. And we all know that following its, um, it's been in multiple, I have multiple hardcover, original printings, specialty, uh, uh, you know, maybe a graffiti edition, um, uh, prints, like giant sized 11 by 17 poster prints of all the covers. DC kept Watchmen in perpetuity. They kept printing it, manufacturing it. They will tell you they were meeting demand of what they invested in. And per the agreement, having never abandoned it for even so much as a year, they were able to hold on to those rights. Okay. Um, Alan Moore could have, obviously, you can understand that he expected that he would re regain control of Watchmen had DC not, uh, you know, continued publishing them. And you guys, this is not a, I, I won't name names, but I have friends in the industry, the, the entertainment industry. <clears throat> if a network or a production company fails to put out a, a new edition of their uh, show or movie, then after an, an amount of time, those come back to them. I myself have had options 
And if that option is not enacted two years after the last payment, then it returns to you. Okay. So, so it's, um, these are very, you'll, you'll find varying degrees of all the same agreements, but if I am no longer going to make your show, there is language in there that says that show then returns to you and you may shop it around. So, so it's called lapse. It lapses. Okay. That's kind of the legal, um, legalese of it. DC never allowed Watchmen to lapse. So, um, as a result of this, much to, I mean, I can imagine, look, there's all sorts of, uh, there's all sorts of different platforms you can never, ever anticipate. And, and, and nowadays, you know, I'll tell you myself, I had an agreement that I'm working on currently. And in February, when I saw the rise of these non-fungible tokens, NFTs, and the art exploitation of them, I rushed to my attorney to contact the party that I wanted NFTs to be part of the process that, uh, you know, uh, I wanted that to be part of our deal and to get that language in there because I don't want to have to come back and try and chase it later. And in, and the other party agreed and we, it literally elongated the talks for two months, but we implemented the NFT language. It was happening. We were in the process of doing it. I could get on the phone and implement it. Alan, I'm sure did not see this coming. And I don't believe DC had nefarious, uh, motivations. They had a book that was selling. They were meeting demand. The hardcovers, the trades, they're selling out. I'll tell you right now, let's say Image Comics. I just reissued uh, editions of a property that I um, have control over with Image Comics. And we agreed to go back to press on 5,000 copies per edition. Now, this is the fourth and fifth printings for these editions. Each one is at about 5,000 copies. So when we sell out of 5,000, I talk to the publisher. Image says, would you like to go forward with another 5,000? Do you, you know, that's kind of the best number. It's the, makes the most financial sense. Any number less, you're paying more per unit. Okay. So there's a financial aspect to it with, with these properties. I said, yes, let's do this. Let's do 5,000 per edition. I know I got those editions, you know, uh, delivered to me and I've already seen the retail community and fans say, Hey, these are available at the distribution level. Now there's new editions of these again. So we are in fact meeting demand. Those sell out, those sell through. That's how you get to five editions, six editions. I can't imagine what hundredth edition Watchmen is on. But as a result of that, Alan did not receive Watchmen back. So in 1989, as a result of this not having access to Watchmen because DC is keeping it in perpetuity. They're publishing new editions, new volumes of the same work, and that's part of keeping it in press, okay? It'd be one thing if they published Watchmen issue 12, then they published the collection, and they never published anything ever again. But this is the dawn, and Dark Knight and Watchmen are actually, in fact, wildly responsible for the trade business that we're in now, trade paperbacks, hardcover collections. It's because those two collections from DC blew up and, and became more than just comic book literature. literature. It entered the pop culture, you know, uh, 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 world of everybody had to have it. You know, once they were in, 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 once they were binge worthy, as we discussed, and you could read all four at one time, whether it was Dark Knight or all 12, with it, or, or whether it was Watchmen, they became even more um, uh, uh, desirable. So, 
So this is D DC just milking the cow. They're milking the cow, but as a result of milking the cow, Allen doesn't get the cow back. So in 1989, he vowed, I will never work with DC Comics again. He said, uh, he revisited this resignation with DC. He, he recounts it again in 2006. So 15 years ago, he told the New York Times, and I'm quoting the New York Times, he said, <clears throat> fair enough in regards to DC Comics. You have managed to successfully swindle me. And as a result, I will never work for you again. Let's revisit this. He tells the New York Times in 2006, fair enough to DC Comics. You have managed to successfully swindle me. And so I will never work for you again. And let me tell you something. He didn't. He kind of just kind of went, uh, went, just, just went away, uh, uh, fell into the shadows. Perhaps he was disappointed. This is also coincides with the time that Image Comics blew up, that, that you had, you know, that, that you had. Spider-Man number one, that you had X-Force number one, that you had X-Men number one, that the, the artist revolution happened. And so it, it made sense to coincide with the fact that Alan is now no longer going to um, work with them. He had done Killing Joke. That was already written at the time. That was, he wrote Killing Joke while, the, while they were publishing the first Watchmen collections. And so it was then, you know, you'd have to wait a year later. Um, so Killing Joke with Brian Boland, the seminal Joker, you know, uh, uh, story that, that, that literally lit all of comic books on fire. Again, another genius piece of Alan Moore's imagination, also accompanied by maybe the best line work, storytelling, illustration, rendering that Brian Boland ever committed on page. I mean, it's, it's, it's a brilliant work. Alan following that no longer now with the realization of Watchmen, is doing work for DC. The artists have taken over the asylum. Image Comics blows up. When all of that kind of settles and Image Comics has now become a powerhouse, by, 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 by the early, early on in Spawn's run, he does his, I'm going to get different writers to come on board and write if different issues of Spawn. Alan Moore comes on and he influences the Spawn mythos um, a great deal. And, and introduces aspects of of uh, of Spawn that 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 stick around to this day. Uh, in the same way that Neil Gaiman Gaiman sorry Neil Gaiman came in and, and influenced by giving the Angela and all that 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 different element that that is literally to dissect what happened in those four issues. You know, uh, Cerebus. Uh, scribe David Sim contributed, Frank Miller contributed, but but between Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman, Gaiman, I don't know why I'm calling him Gaiman, Neil Gaiman, between the two of them, they truly expanded the uh, the mythos of of Spawn with with all of these um, different additions uh, that that <clears throat> that uh, that 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 they impacted and. Uh, and, and, and it, it, it expanded, certainly expanded, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the, what, what, what Todd had, had established and, and, uh, he, uh, Alan chose to, uh, preserve the, the violence and the darkness of, of, of McFarlane's issues, but he, he, he was more satirical in his, in his uh, in his 
presentation and in and and really kind of leans into spawn and and the dante's inferno aspect and and violator and uh and and it's 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 a really fun weird issue and uh and and has you know malaboja and 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 all of these different different aspects that absolutely thrilled uh thrilled the, the the comic book readers who are grabbing that issue to see wow what would Alan Moore do with Todd McFarlane, and uh, and then Todd had him do a mini series called Blood Feud, and so Alan is now back doing work for some very high profile folks, and Eric Stevenson is a huge fan of Alan Moore as am I, and and the next thing is Alan is writing a Violator miniseries. I mean, he's doing a spotlight miniseries on Todd's villain for Spawn. And so it really seems, if you are observing, that this um, very celebrated scribe is open for business. Well, I thought it would be a great idea to have Violator and Bad Rock uh, square off. The the artist that we chose for the series, Brian Denham, he, uh, I think we were mashing up the toys. Like, there was action figure prototypes, Violator, Bad Rock, and wouldn't it be great if this happened? So, well, since Alan Moore was having dominion over Violator at the time, it made sense to call him up and say, would you do this? I'm going to tell you, I was shocked. I was as shocked as the next guy when he said, <clears throat> oh, certainly, yes. Yes, I, I would be happy to write Vi- Vi- Violator v- versus Bad Rock. Um, and we were off to the races, and that exists. There's a Violator Bad Rock miniseries written by Alan Moore. Alan... Uh, Again, I've, 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 my interactions with Alan, um, especially during that time, what Alan was very um, uh, specifically insistent on, he wanted to turn in a voucher and get paid very quickly. And Image Comics was paying very well. And I've outlined, again, the many tens of thousands that we wrote, that, that, that we wrote, that we paid for Alan's writing. He was our top paid writer. We gave him the top compensation and this continued all the way through Supreme and all these others. And it was not uh, uncommon for on any given Friday to have three or four vouchers uh, all totaling, you know, between forty dollars to $60,000 come in and we would immediately wire that money to Alan because he would always say, and, and, and payment is, is imminent. Yes. And uh, we had him on lockdown in regards to wire transfer. Uh, Money, us paying Alan Moore, thank God, was never an issue. You would have heard about it. That that would have become an issue because when Alan wants to go into feud mode, you're going to get all the cat scratches. He's going to come at you uh, in in a way to, um, to, to, much like the Monty Python, you know, you're going to have more than a flesh wound, those arms and those legs are going to get cut off at, at, at the joints and you're going to be um, sitting there in the mud. Alan uh, is, uh, is formidable. So we established this relationship and Alan very much, and he told me, I love getting paid. And, and I think Alan settled into this really nice relationship where, let's, let's not forget, we all are trying to make a living putting our pen to paper or our words to screen as a writer, you know, with those keyboards, nobody, uh, we all want to, you know, uh, enlighten our lives with our talents and see them paid off. And 
So no one wants to work for free. No one's asking to work for free. And so, and the better we can compensate artists, uh, the better off we all are. And so in the, in those days, we could afford to be, <clears throat> to pay Alan the top rate. And we did. And we did it for the entirety of while he worked for us. And, and there is no real Alan Moore versus Rob Liefeld feud, because as I told you, that ends very, um, I'd say sadly, with myself declining. And I covered this in my Alan Moore uh podcast when it was the decision to go forward with supreme was on the table and he was going he was going to continue doing supreme while he did the abc um the abc uh series over at wildstorm while he did tom strong while he did these alan said i would because i told him i could no longer given uh, that the financier who was putting money into Awesome had um, gone, had had financial troubles, and could no longer afford afford to bankroll the line per the agreement that we had, you know, made. Which is why we cut back so drastically. I then ran the company on my own dime, choosing to continue to publish and pay for Fighting American, The Coven by Ian Churchill and Jeff Loeb at the time, and Supreme. Um, and I felt like I'm now a really small boutique line boutique line. And I, I also did a book called the, the rejects that I did myself. Um, so it was like a, a, a much smaller from, from 10 to eight to four books. I, I figured I'd it's still, you know, because my passion is comics, I'd still keep it out there, but that's what I decided. If, if I'm going to roll the dice and, and get back to financing these all on my own, I'm going to do Supreme. But then Alan threw a wrinkle in it and he gave me what I would say is the hard sell. And he'd say, <clears throat> no, I, I, I know. <clears throat> he told me, I, I, I understand this, this may, you know, take a minute to get to get used to. But uh, I, I have a neighbor, literally my neighbor, and, and he taught me everything that I I know. He's he's a bit of a, a mentor to me, and, uh, and and his name is Stephen Moore. And I would like for him to take over Supreme. I will oversee, you know, the outlines, and but but Stephen will be the name writer. And again, I said, you know, Alan, with all due respect. That's not a path I'm going to go around. At the time, I was a hot-button ticket. People were rooting for my failures and missteps. And for me to announce that, hey, everybody, I don't have Alan Moore. I have Stephen Moore. Instead, would have been... And also, Alan said, same... <clears throat> very, uh, and, and it would be for the same rate. No change in payment. The exact same rate. So I'm paying Alan Moore rates to get Stephen Moore, who I'm sure is a delightful man. Who I, I've read some of his stories. He's certainly a gifted writer. He is not Alan Moore. Um, but it, it would have been kind of like, hey, everybody, I couldn't afford the legitimate guy. But here is the knockoff. So I was literally pitched a variant of Alan Moore. I was, I was given an echo option. And I declined. I figured we've told all the Supreme stories. We can stop from there. And, and that is where our glorious, epic, critically acclaimed run will end. And I was good with it. There was no anger, no bitterness. I understood that hand was played out. If I wasn't going to get the whole more, I didn't want to get the echo more. So I segued out. I saw that Alan went on to do the ABC um, series. And of those series, I thought Tom Strong was masterful, brilliant. The others didn't click as much with me. That doesn't mean that they don't have their fans and that they are not adored and um, respected works. I just, Tom Strong, because I just loved how it, it, it had some of the same fantastic worlds feel that um, Alan had been given Supreme and also Chris Sprouse segueing from Supreme to do ABC with Alan was brilliant. But if you think I've skipped steps, I haven't. I've taken you from the Alan Moore 
Todd, Spawn, Blood Feud, Violator, into the Violator Badrock, Supreme, Fast Track you through Youngblood Glory, and, and then to ABC. Because now is where we get back to Alan's feud with DC is revisited, very strangely. So the uh, his issue with, um, with DC is reignited and revisited because... Shortly after, I mean, literally, they, they, they line up. You have to believe, if you examine the timeline, that DC was in talks with Jim. That year that Jim was selling Wildstorm. Again, I have a different uh, viewpoint on it because my, we shared an agent at CAA. And because of what was happening with me at Awesome Comics, uh, CAA, they were they, the, your agents become like your friends. They're your buddies. They look out for you. Um, while they did not broker the deal with Awesome, they knew the gentleman, the financier, and they knew that it had um, gone kind of south after uh, two years and, and it was causing some bumps in the road. And um, my agent was very concerned that Jim, uh, because of the Gen 13 cartoon and the costs that he had put out for it, because at one time he was just yelling at me. And I said, look, you shouldn't be telling me this. I'm, I'm not Jim. You should tell this to Jim. He's like, I told him not to spend all that money. And uh, he's, he's, he's bleeding red ink everywhere. On Gen 13, that cartoon, the cartoon that Jim created with some great talents was never able to be released. If you have a bootleg copy, that's as good as it got. I think it had a one-time uh, screening in one of the back rooms at Wizard, uh, at one of the shows. They did a, they, you know, folded chairs. Here's Gen 13 after hours. Um, that cartoon, because Disney had acquired the live-action rights to Gen 13, and I was, again, in Disney, in Burbank, um, talking about a a, a movie, uh, which was The Mark, which at that point now I have Will Smith attached. And because I was in the comic book business, sometimes people just talk freely and they opened up to me that 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 they would be uh, not allowing that Gen 13 cartoon to be released. So, so the millions that went out on this movie, and yes, animated cartoon movies cost millions, with no return path, put Jim in a financial, uh, uh, a tough spot. And so he is looking for suitors, so much so that he has asked to have a meeting with my awesome guy, who is, I know now, can't afford to back anyone. But Jim is meeting all over town. And I know many of the people he's meeting with because I'm doing deals with them. New Line, some of these others, Jim is trying to get uh, Wildstorm purchased and, and, and basically off of his hands and get some of this debt moved. And, and sometimes that happens behind the scenes. And it's the reason Marvel went into bankruptcy. Not because their comics didn't sell well, because they had leveraged money on buying trading card companies, foreign, you know, sticker companies like Panini, um, entire comic book distribution networks like Heroes World, um, uh, uh, animation divisions, as well as toy companies like Toy Biz. Sometimes, you know, the amount of acquisitions you've done uh, lopsides your business, tilts it in the wrong direction, and you have to shed some debt. And and there's other way. You either sell or you go into a, a bankruptcy reform, um, reorganization. So so all of this is is kind of on the table. And Jim ultimately sell, sells to DC Comics, but that doesn't happen overnight. That's a six month, seven month. You're dancing with a lot of suitors at that point. During this time is when they enter into this agreement with. Alan Moore, but DC has not been solidified. But once it is solidified and they have a deal with Alan and now they're selling to DC, they have to let Alan Moore know because the one thing everyone in 1998 knows about Alan Moore is that he does not want to ever work 
for DC Comics again. Now, I was reading and in, in researching this and getting all my, you know, sourcing. There, there's an article on CBR, Comic Book Resources. It's the reason I don't talk to them anymore. That, that, uh, this goes back to 2017. They errantly report as if it's fact that Awesome was in some sort of contact at all or, or sales talks with DC Comics to buy Awesome. Let me assure you right now, that is 100% bullshit made up. We did not... The last thing I wanted to do was sell to another publisher. I was holding out, and to this day, my catalog, I, I am talking to media partners. Um, I can publish comic books on my own. The, the, the idea that we ever once danced with uh, entertained talks, DC never entertained wanting awesome. They never, ever entertained that. In this article, it says that talks broke off between Rob Liefeld's awesome and, 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 uh, and, 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 and the 90s, and, and our awesome's fortunes waned, which is true. I've established that. But then it says, you know, um, that, that we were trying to sell the only thing of value we had, which was Alan Moore. But then uh, this entire reporting is just, it's just made up facts, made up just complete horseshit. I, I, I hate reading about my life when I'm reading about things that never happened. But I, I, I was reading an Alan Moore article about DC Comics and found all of these made-up stories about me that, that, that are involved in this. So let me just tell you right now, we were never in talks with DC Comics ever in the existence of Awesome at all. When Awesome was done, I had the conversation with Alan. I then informed him what our going forward was going to be, that I wasn't going to go forward with those other books, um, that I could not afford to, to, to you know, keep those going. I, I chose I chose again just to do Supreme. He then comes back and attempts to sell me. And you can say, no, 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 he was trying to pivot out. No, he was very disappointed when I did not hit the neighbor slash Steve Moore option. And uh and you know, we parted ways. And it was amicable. It was as amicable as you, you could possibly be with a creator. He then throws everything he has into ABC. And the handlers that he has at Wildstorm are assuring him this is gonna be the best experience he's ever had, except it wasn't because he was immediately informed that he was now working for a company that was under DC Comics Dominion. So DC Comics now owns Wildstorm. It's been sold. It's everywhere. The headlines, Jim Lee leaves image sales to DC Comics. You know, uh, there, it was a giant earthquake cover of the magazines. Big deal. Uh, they immediately had to scramble. It was funny, I'll, I'll be honest, reading the magazines, the Comics Buyer's Guide, the Comics Journal, what happened is Alan had now fallen in love with doing these ABC comics. Let's, let's, let's establish, I truly believe he loved doing these books. But he was pissed that they were now under the control of the company that he had spent 11 years not working for. And so... Uh, here we go. You know, um, they tell, they tell Alan that the word that was used over and over and over and over again, and it was the topic of everybody here in the States, all the professionals, oh, did you read that? They're providing a firewall. Jim Lee was providing a firewall between himself and Alan. And of course, until he couldn't and wouldn't, and it, and that firewall is in fact breached by DC because it was an illusion. It's what you tell somebody. And I do believe, and this is the only thing that I will be critical of, Alan Moore heard what he wanted to hear there. So, so 
uh, in watching, some of you guys may be watching Netflix's The Movies That Made Us, and, and again, it revisits the making of Pretty Woman. The new season is Forrest Gump, Pretty Woman, Jurassic Park, and uh, and uh, Back to the Future. All fun stories. Many you've heard before, but it's fun the way they edit and present them. But uh, Touchstone Pictures was the adult version of um, Disney, the Disney arm that became the adult version that, that gave us a, a lot of Three Men and a Baby, Three Men and a Little Lady, Pretty Woman, um, down and out in Beverly Hills. I mean, Touchstone Pictures had a huge run for about four or five years. Right stars, right directors, and they were not Disney movies. The Disney brand had been frowned upon as just family film kid stuff. So to reboot that, they created a label. Touchstone Pictures would be their adult movies where you could make a movie about a prostitute, you know, wooed by a Wall Street guy like Pretty Woman or a baby left on the door of three handsome bachelors, like three men and a baby. So these, uh, Touchstone was very successful, but it was at no point did anyone not know that when you were going to do business with Touchstone, they were an an arm, an extension, a, a, a part of the ownership of Disney. Okay. Wildstorm was the Touchstone of DC Comics. It was a piece of them now. It was a part of them. They were owning it. If they are writing your checks... If you're writing a check to to Jim for Alan Moore, and then Jim is writing that check to you, that's Disney's money. And Disney owns the printing presses that are the week that those are going out. They they rent that time. Everything's on DC's dime because they consumed and owned Wildstorm. It was a complete acquisition, not a partnership. It was an acquisition, which is why now Wildcats, Stormwatch, that is all owned by DC Comics. It's not a partnership. So the firewall excuse. Oh, but it's okay, Alan. We, we're going to create a firewall with you. We're going to uh, pay you through a different entity that I'm going to create. I think it was called Aegis, which means shield. Okay. I mean, it doesn't get any cornier than this. Alan accepts that excuse as serviceable to continue doing what he's doing. Right up until they interfered with one of his books that DC did not own, which is... And in my opinion, since Watchmen, his best work, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Not the movie, um, but The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which was an, a brilliant uh, bringing together of all the pulp heroes, Alan Quartermain, you know, The Invisible Man, um, uh, 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 Jekyll and Hyde. And, and it, the comics are brilliant with Kevin O'Neill. They are just outstanding. They're brilliant. But... Alan created those outside of his agreement with Wildstorm. And he had those going prior to ABC, America's Best Comics. So when DC decided to pulp an entire issue because Alan put fake advertisements, like they, they, they looked like they'd be out of a paper in 1890 or, or you know, or, or 1910. There was an ad and it repeatedly mentioned Marvel uh, uh, and, and really highlighted Marvel from the Marvel Company. It was about a syringe and, uh, you know, I'm looking at it now. I don't know that I would have pulped a whole bunch of comics over this, but DC acted in the way that they acted. And in doing so, violated their um, Alan Moore's perception of the firewall. And uh, at that point, it was the point of no return. And he concluded his work that he had done on ABC and called it a day and walked away. And now you get Tom Strong without Alan Moore and all the other stuff because there was no firewall. It was always owned by DC Comics and that's why you get them now interacting with the greater DC universe. 
So Alan got kind of played in his mind. Again, go back to that New York Times, that New York Times. Imagine now, so in 2006, he claims in his his comment, you know, uh, that, 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 you know, he was swindled. And, and, and in reliving that New York Times quote in 2006 to the NYT, fair enough, you have managed to successfully swindle me, and so I will never work for you again until ABC Comics, which you will work for them again because you will accept the quote-unquote firewall as an acceptable uh, v- verbiage for that somehow they don't completely control you. But then Paul Levitz reaches completely through the firewall and tanks your League of Extraordinary Gentlemen number five over an advertisement for the Marvel company about a a, 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 a fictional, I mean, it's, it's, it's so kind of crazy absurd, but it was meddling. And as a result, DC had been in contact, talk, talks with more because the firewall had gone so well up to that point. The firewall had, had maintained for the better part of five years Alan was going to support a 15-year anniversary of the Watchmen. He was on board until he wasn't. Because of this meddling, he withdrew all support. And later on, Alan would say that they were even in talks with him. Again, in the Dan DiDio area, uh, arena, when they did before Watchmen, when they decided we're going to completely... And now there's no looking back because we've gotten Doomsday Clock with Jeff Johns too. But before Watchmen was a very aggressive... Uh, multi-issue, multi-title uh, platform to capitalize on what was coming with Zack Snyder's Watchmen. There was going to be a major, big-budget Watchmen film, and uh, and and you bet your bottom dollar that that DC was going to be there to cash out on it with a whole new line of products that could be repurposed, republished, repackaged. You've seen them right now. You can go into your bookstore or you can go into your Amazon, and right next to Watchmen, there's all of the before Watchmen stuff. And, uh, and, and, and so Alan withdrew his support for the 15th year anniversary. DC canceled all sorts of action figures and special items that were coinciding because they didn't want to draw any more ire than they did. But then before Watchmen, Alan claims that they had um, spoken to him about giving him partial rights to the Watchmen back. If he would agree, in his words, they offered me the rights. <clears throat> they offered me the rights to Watchmen if I would agree to some dopey prequels and sequels, dopey prequels and sequels. Okay. Um, so, so, so he just said, uh, maybe if you had done that 10 years before, he says, maybe if you had done that, um, those are his words. I don't want Watchmen back anymore. I certainly don't want it. I certainly don't want it back under those kind of terms. All right. All right. I'm Alan and that's not happening. <laughs> that's my information improvisation uh his sentence ends with certainly i don't want it back under those kind of terms which would have been to contribute to the prequels and sequels and so there uh dies alan's interview um involvement with the watchmen all over a a a a snag um with uh with this perpetuity of dc exploiting watchmen which otherwise one, one, one and done. A year later, he has it, and who knows what happens with it, but that's not what happened. With Marvel, he won't work with Marvel again, and he was courted in the early 2000s by Bill Jemis, and I know for a fact Bill Jemis told me to my face, I am repeating, they were hopeful that they could get Alan Moore, and what a great thing this would have been. They were hopeful they could get Alan Moore to write the Fantastic Four. They knew his love 
of Stan and Jack and, and Reed and Sue and John and Johnny and Ben. And they thought if we could get Alan Moore on Fantastic Four, and trust me, I would love to have seen that. You would love love to have seen that. And uh, his his um, issues with Marvel uh, stem to the Marvel Man and the uh, his asserting that he didn't want them uh, reprinting those issues way before, like the lawsuits with McFarlane and and Todd trying to obtain uh, and Marvel getting the rights to Miracle Man slash Marvel Man back via Neil Gaiman and and this entire handing off of copyrights and trademarks and who owned what. But Alan uh, did not want to have, back in the day, he asked uh, he asked Marvel to not um, go forward on um, on 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 an issue in regards to uh, to to uh, to to Captain Britain. It's actually Captain Britain. Forgive me. Along with Alan Davis, uh, and and uh, he had a falling out. It, it had to do with reprint free fees and rights. And Alan, again, as we've seen, will. Uh, will will get on his um he will have his position he will lean into that position this started with captain britain later he becomes you know uh so- somewhat kind of on the sidelines but involved with the work of the miracle man because if you're going to reprint that so if you're reprinting alan moore stuff and it, again that dovetails to marvel because trust me you and i both would love to see alan moore do the fantastic four but i think those ships have all sailed and the reason this is alan moore versus everybody is because nobody can seem to make him happy in the long term and that is his uh, my my experience with him was happy we had some fun times we had some great times great talks about um movies and tv and literature and comic books and and i i found alan to be spirited and fun but if you pissed him off and got on his bad side, it really was a, a kind of a forever thing. And and his love of doing the ABC comics allowed him to accept the verbiage of Firewall until the book that DC did not own, which is why Alan travels with League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. He can travel with that book, okay? He can travel with that book in a way that he can't with ABC because he had made that prior, prior to them. And again, the Captain America... Uh, I'm sorry, the Captain Britain issue with Marvel UK and Marvel and Alan Davis. This is all um, part of this uh, this 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 uh, this fallout with Marvel, and then apparently a, a credit was left off. I'm not sure why. I've had credits l- been left off myself, and that's when he told Joe Casada and Bill Jemis that he would no longer entertain doing anything for them. And, and, and that he is no longer going to consider working with Marvel. This goes all the way back to 2002. They tried to get him to contribute to a 9-11, their 9-11 tribute comic. So again, this is why you haven't seen Alan Moore's name in lights with Marvel, that there's always something. And, um, and you know, it's his right. I'm going to fall on the on the side of the, of the artist. But in the meantime, I'm going to tell you about you know, the feuds. And, 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 and if DC never, ever violates in, in Alan's mind this perpetuity, if, they, if, if somehow he gets back um, the, uh, the, the, you know, Watchmen rights, maybe he never leaves DC. Maybe he never does Violator. Maybe he never does Spawn number eight. He certainly doesn't do Violator Bad Rock. I mean, we, we can keep kicking it down the road, but 
Alan um, follows his own muse. He's, you know, we haven't even mentioned From Hell, which is brilliant. I highly recommend not only the book, which is just absolutely gorgeous and brilliant, but also the Johnny Depp movie adaptation. Um, but, uh, but, but the, the, uh, the, uh, you know, we're, we're, when it comes to, um, when it comes to Alan and his properties, again, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, um, his adaptations, especially in, in, uh, you know, Hollywood, especially given, uh, the stuff that he still kind of has say on, like with, with, with League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Um, I mean, that is like, like, again, he was able to travel with that. But when the, uh, when, when the film came out, <clears throat> he was not supportive of it, withdrew his name. And, uh, and, and there's been talk of adapting, adapting it as a, uh, as a, uh, as a TV show. And of course, you know, Alan Moore, when 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 Fox was considering turning League of Extraordinary Gentlemen into a TV show because Fox has the adaptation rights per the 2003 film, uh, he Alan spoke to, uh, uh, um, you know, to Entertainment Weekly, and he told them that he felt that it was, uh, you know, dustbin hunting, that 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 uh, you know, um. <laughs> That that uh, that in 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 during this he tells uh, Entertainment Weekly that that both he and Kevin O'Neill were chuckling um, about this idea with them turning *Leave Extraordinary Gentlemen* into a TV show, and he says when they did the recent Watchmen prequel comics, this is Alan speaking to Entertainment Weekly. I said all sorts of deeply, <clears throat> I said all sorts of deeply offensive things about modern entertainment industry clearly having no ideas of its own and having to go through dustbins and spittoons in the dead of night in order to recycle things. He says, that that's, those are his own words, the announcement that there is a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen television series hasn't caused me to drastically alter my opinion. It seems they are only recycling things that have already proven not to work. Uh, in regards to his opinion of the film that starred Sean Connery that is, you know, not, not, uh, I don't think it's a train wreck. A lot of people do, but it's not the brilliance of, you know, if you want to experience League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, read the comic book volumes. But anyway, Alan Moore, um, is as infamous and, and, and as notorious for his feuds, um, as he is with, uh, for his brilliant work. And that's just the way it is. Uh, everything I have read to you today is sourced New York times, entertainment weekly, Comics Journal, and uh, and and he's very much on the record. And I, I again, I met Alan as a fan. Jerry Ordway introduced me to him on the floor of San Diego Comic Con in 1987 and 88, and he was in his tank top, and, and he had his long hair, and uh, and 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 he looked like Jesus, kind of mixed with Charles Manson, but he was sweet and he was kind, and he was a gentleman. And and I have always enjoyed interacting with him. But these proclamations, declarations of not working with these companies, um, I mean, certainly it has denied us further Alan Moore Superman, further Alan Moore Batman. And, and it's so much of, again, Alan Moore Fantastic Four is maybe the thing I want most in the world, but I am fairly certain now I will not be getting it. Um, for whatever reason, I think we should just kind of reconcile that he just doesn't want to be bothered. He just doesn't want 
to be bothered. And, you know, God bless him. That is his right. So we have covered Alan Moore versus the world on today's um, tongue in cheek. Come on, tongue in cheek. We're having fun with this. Um, as he, uh, as, as he was, uh, you know, pitted, uh, against, um, against, uh, you know, um, different publishers, different situations. And, and which is why you've never gotten beyond his original Watchmen work, which, um, we're not going to delve into the quality of the other adaptations. None of them have come from Alan. He did that, that again, the strength of that body of work is such that so many spinoffs have indeed occurred from it. Again, one thing as I began this podcast, you will never, ever hear me not say that Alan is anything less than a brilliant scribe genius all along uh, the watchtower. This guy just is one of a kind, is one of comics most celebrated for a reason, but he has his principles. Do I believe that they were, you know, kind of disqualified when he accepted the firewall dc owns you you said you'd never work for them again they bought wildstorm you're doing work for wildstorm therefore you're doing work for dc but when paul levitz pulped and when i mean pulped they destroyed those issues and and did not they they read you know they did not want those issues with that ad out there so when you pulp something that inherently you go back to press removing whatever it was that caused this pulping to happen and reissue it um I've had one comic pulped. It was interesting. It was a licensed work. I did not own the license, but I was certainly part of it. Someday I'll I'll, I'll give it to you. Um, thank you guys for listening. Comic Book Feuds, Alan Moore. We delved into it. We saw it. We watched it. DC was the phantom ghost that he could not escape um, and ultimately engulfed so much of what he did. And uh, watch out for those firewalls, kids. So anyway, you can reach me all over social media. But before I tap into that, I'm going to read your reviews. You guys are so good. You leave reviews for me and I, I am so thankful for them. They help the show tremendously. Continue to reach out if you can. Let, share with us what you like about the show. I've been on the road, Florida, Arizona, Texas this last year. The podcast is always brought up. I am actually overwhelmed given the four stops in Florida and the stop I just had in Scottsdale, Arizona, and how much enthusiasm for the podcast. It touches me. You guys see I light up when you when you talk about it because as I've told some of you, it's it's just me and this mic. And sometimes I feel like I'm I'm losing my mind talking to this mic. But the stuff that I'm saying is connecting. It's entertaining you. I've asked you guys and you've said you like the drama and you like the history. Those are the things you guys have told me. You enjoy the drama when I can share share with you behind the scenes drama and when I can share with you history of comics. And in this case Today, you got a little of both. You got some drama and you got some history. Um, and here are some of your reviews. Shrike, Shrike, S-H-R-I-K-E 3000. Let, uh, read, uh, leaves a five-star review, talk comics from the perspective of a creator. No one has loved his life in comics like Rob has. And he's not beholden to anyone but his tongue. The stories and observations you haven't heard anywhere. This show is an absolute blast. Thank you, Shrike 3000. I so appreciate it. This next review is from Argo, Argo Comics, my favorite podcast. Five stars. Thank you so much, Argo Comics. Rob Liefeld is one of my favorite artists, having collected his work since his Megaton days. This is a great walk down memory lane, not only for his work, but for the cons. My 
consuming of comics since 1971. I publish independent comics, partly inspired by Rob's career. I look forward to each and every episode, which helps inspire me to keep putting in the work. Thank you, Argo Comics. Thank you, Shrike3000. Thank you for these wonderful reviews. You guys can post those uh, through the different platforms, Apple and Spotify and what have you. Um, They reach me. I am sent them. I see them. I thank you so much. You can reach me personally on social media. I'm at Twitter at Robert Liefeld. Blue check. I talk to you and interact with you guys all over Twitter. I am on Instagram at Rob Liefeld. Blue check. I love hanging with you guys. I love talking with you guys. Um, Thank you for reaching out to me on those platforms. And you guys know I'm all over Facebook. I'm in the groups. I'm on the pages. Bottom line, like you, I am all over social media. I love reaching out. I love talking to you guys. I love hanging with you guys. Your input is so valuable to me. Thank you for your voices, for for reaching out to me. Continue uh, to have just the best time. I hope you're doing well. I hope things are rebounding for you. I hope the world is better today than it was yesterday. And you guys know the deal. You are going to take care of yourselves. You're going to stay safe. And we are going to talk again real soon. 